in the absence of the marketing viewpoint, they will make decisions that are entirely around uh, what is economically rational and not what is emotionally motivating. Instagram is an extraordinary thing because by allowing people to effectively broadcast the edited highlights of their life, I think that has resulted in a grotesque distortion of human behavior. Welcome back to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm your host, Timothy Maurice, and this is the show where we interrogate the vastness of human behavior by unpacking stories and interviewing people and discussing the latest in brain science research with the ultimate goal of helping you engage with people better, communicate messages to your stakeholders at the highest and most impactful level. I'm pleased to bring you a conversation with Rory Sutherland, the Executive Creative Director and Vice Chairman of Ogilvy Group UK, where he spearheads the Behavioral Science Division, Ogilvy Change. He's the author of Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. It's literally one of my favorite books. He's perfectly positioned to address today's topic. The conversation you're about to hear is edited into three parts. An introduction into why behavioral science is important. Then we explore ideas on how to apply these ideas in everyday life and business. And then lastly, we conclude with why behavioral science is a necessary discipline across many fields. And why all leaders should see this as a vital area to incorporate into their business. We're all an alchemist on some level. Alchemy is simply defined as a magical process of creation. The business world is obsessed with facts, analysis, data, and the ability to use logic to solve the most complex and pressing problems. But the more I study and the more I research the brain, it's becoming increasingly clear that there's a dimension of human behavior where decisions are made which are based more on emotions and feelings which cannot be measured by traditional logical business tools. You see, behavioral economics is attempting to address and understand the relationship between the environment and why people do what they do. And my guest today, Roy Sutherland, is brilliantly and hilariously enlightening the world about the magic of decision-making. And while his work is primarily applied to the field of advertising, you better stay locked because what you will learn can be applied to every area of your life. His TED Talks have had more than 7 million views, and you're about to hear just why. Why is the fact that we are not as rational as we thought such a surprise to people? Um, I think what it is that's interesting is that we have a very dangerous tendency to think that once something makes sense, it's true and inviolable and uh, universally applicable. And, of course, we've evolved to live in an extremely messy environment to make decisions with highly imperfect information and where our decisions in many cases must be calibrated as much to avoid disaster as to achieve perfection. And so that, you know, that will lead to immensely complicated, highly context-sensitive behavior where what we're responding to in many cases is not the objective reality. Uh, it's the meaning we derive from it. And evolution means that we don't actually perceive the world remotely objectively. A lot of this, I think, by the way, not all of it, some of it comes down to the fact that economics is mathematically wrong. And I might have some time to talk about that later. But a lot of this comes down to epistemology, that 
the way we perceive the world is a product of evolution. Evolution cares only about fitness. It doesn't care about accuracy at all. So if evolution has to make a trade-off, if it can gain another 1% or 2% of fitness at the price of 10% of accuracy, it'll make that trade every time. And it isn't in our evolutionary interests to perceive the world objectively. Now, there are far more... Um, academically rigorous books on this subject than my own, by the way. I mean, Don um, Hoffman has just written a book called The Case Against Reality, where he more or less claims that, um, more extreme position than mine, in fact, that the view we have of reality is a little like the connection between a computer desktop and what's really going on within the computer, that it's effectively an interface that our brains create to optimize survival by making the external world intelligible. And, uh, you know, and so once you acknowledge the fact that people don't perceive the world objectively, they don't respond to reality, they respond to a meaning they attach to a reality, and that meaning will vary by context, um, then uh, a lot of things you suddenly realize the, the best way to change the behavior may be to change the story or to change the context or to change the comparison set or the frame rather than changing the reality itself, or, or simply change the nature of human attention. That if we pay attention to different things, we will respond differently. And this is, by the way, you, know, you can call it irrationality if you like, but it seems wrong to condemn something which is actually a necessity if we are to have survived in the yeah. first place. And yeah, by the way, it's fair to say that, you know, not all of our behavior that's the product of evolution is perfectly suited to the modern environment in which we find ourselves in. So our taste for sugary substances was probably evolved in circumstances where anything with a high glycemic load, of which, by the way, honey was pretty much the only example for most of evolutionary history. So anything with a high glycemic load is disproportionately attractive to us simply because we evolved in an environment before refined sugar, before, um, uh, you, you know, or, or corn syrup, when uh, those things were rare and it paid us to get it when you could. Now, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting for a second that evolution is perfect and all other rational attempts to question our behavior are completely wrong. That would be silly. Uh, there are lots and lots of cases where it's possible to abuse uh, our evolved um, characteristics. Uh, you know, one of the things I rant about most fervently is, uh, you know, the fact that credit card companies were allowed to set the default minimum payment at such a low amount. I think, you know, that is that is and has been an abuse of human uh, nature, in a sense. Uh, you know, we tend, when, when in doubt, we tend just to fall back to the default. And I think, you know, there are, there are many, many cases where we can use conscious intelligence to redesign the world much better. And, of course, in the field, in the field of pure engineering or pure science, where human behavior isn't a major factor in determining success, we've done that very, very successfully. But at the same time, we've got to understand that, for example, um, a large part of our behavior sure. is only irrational when you don't understand what it is we're trying to do. And deep down, what we've been evolved to aim for is a much more complicated model of reality than the utility-maximizing model that economics chooses. 
The other thing I think that's important to understand is that um, we tend to have a, a very, very strong fondness for anything that helps us make sense of the world. And so we tend to be disproportionately drawn to models with strong explanatory power, which we can understand, which are simple enough to use. And it's very, very easy for us to become fixated with what's, what the model tells us and to become blind to what isn't included. And so I'd include in that both neoliberal economics and also things like the London tube map. Over time, with overuse, with repeated use, the London tube map has distorted every Londoner's idea of London. And in a, in, a, in a sense, if you want to outwit your competitors in business, if all your competitors are using the same map or model and they've been using it for a very long time, the best approach isn't to ask what's on the map, it's to ask what the map leaves out. Because that's where comparative advantage, that's where competitive advantage lies. From the early 1900s, when Edward Bernays and, you know, the consumer psychology began, you know, the, the idea of, of engineering perception went through sort of a, it was, it was the birthing of a shift in sort of psychology as it relates to product and people. Do you feel as though consumer psychology is going through a bit of a renaissance? Is that what behavioral science is doing, is sort of adding a new chapter to consumer psychology? Well, I think, I think first of all, I think it's vital to remember that um, uh, there was, I think, something happened in the 50s and 60s where the early period of, say, Ogilvy would have employed a consumer psychologist uh, inside the agency. And something happened, not partly the reward and remuneration mechanism, which is agencies made money through media commission. And so provided they could okay. justify running a large number of television advertisements, they didn't really have to worry for their survival very much. and They didn't have to go any deeper. Uh, anything else they did was called below the line and was billed out at cost, effectively. Okay, so... Another thing happened, which is the United States, particularly, I think, around the time of the Korean War, where soldiers would emerge who'd been essentially brainwashed, although you could argue persuaded, uh, to support communist ideas. Uh, there was an extraordinary level of paranoia around the idea of brainwashing and manipulation. And it probably didn't last very long, but it was a very, very intense period where you had films like The Manchurian Candidate, books like The Hidden Persuaders, um, um, uh, yes. You know, all the work into that sort of uh, uh, very, very interesting work in, you know, product design, you know, the design of the Marlboro pack signifying masculinity through hard edges, the design of, uh, you know, the radiators of cars being highly symbolic. And it seems as though the ad industry completely bottled that and essentially said, no, 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 advertising doesn't work in a subliminal or subconscious um, or non-conscious way at all. It is merely the truth well told. Uh, it's um, uh, essentially uh, the, the, uh, rational persuasion deployed at mass scale. You know, argumentation, rational argumentation deployed yeah. at mass scale. And that was a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card to avoid embarrassment or accusations of manipulation. But in the longer term, I think it was a terrible wrong turn. 
I mean, I do occasionally say in my more mischievous moments that I'm, you know, I wouldn't mind a bit more Don Draperism brought back into the business. Uh, you know, a little more of, of the, you know, uh, you know, shul, you know, calling the round thing on a slide projector the carousel rather than whatever it was, the slide sorter. You know, that kind of stuff where you just, it, you know, um, uh, you you work much more widely to ask deeper and far deeper questions about what people's um, ultimate motivation is. Now, this is a really complicated one because. In fairness to economics, it does distinguish between stated preference and revealed preference. That what people do is a much more significant guide to what they're really trying to achieve than what they claim they want. And that's a distinction which seems to exist quite widely. So in evolutionary biology, they always talk about the proximate and the ultimate motivation. And the proximate motivation and the ultimate motivation may be surprisingly um, tangential in their connection. So I always argue that the official motivation for cleaning our teeth is dental health, okay? Now, uh, if you ask a bunch of people, why do you clean your teeth? They talk about cavities, tooth decay, enamel, gum health, oral hygiene in general. If you look at when people clean their teeth, which is what you might call the revealed preference, what you will see is a very strong preference for cleaning your teeth before a date, Okay, very strong preference for cleaning your teeth before you go to work, first thing in the morning. After lunch, when it would best pay to clean your teeth in terms of dental health, for example, we don't see many people taking a toothbrush to work. And what that suggests is that there's a kind of official veneer, which is all about dental health. Deep down, however, our motivation is vanity uh, of some kind. And that may be uh, you know, we don't want our mating prospects kiboshed by having bad breath. It may simply be that we don't want to lose status. By the way, bad breath would kill your mating prospects. I've often talked to people, you know, you know imagine the, the actress of your dreams and then imagining her with, you know, really, really appalling breath, vice versa for women. Um, it would be pretty significantly <laughs> off-putting. This is what I've, try- I've been trying to say, just not so eloquently, about social media and Instagram and people's intentions. So a woman or a man will post a bikini photo and then put a, you know, a scripture from, um, you know, the book of Paul. (laughs) It's the same sort of thing, I'm assuming. Instagram is an extraordinary thing because um, uh, the, the, it's information sharing at the ostensible level, but um by allowing people to effectively broadcast the edited highlights of their life, I think that has resulted in a grotesque distortion of human behavior, by the way. And it has certainly changed. This is what I mean. If you think about it, 99% of toothpaste is flavored with mint. Well, if it were about dental health, where the mint plays no role. Um, If you look at the vast majority of Instagram photographs, uh, they are essentially saying, look at me in a highly selective way. Now, the person who predicted this in a book called Spent, Jeffrey Miller, the evolutionary uh, psychologist, he predicted that Instagram and social media in general would have a very major effect on our consumption patterns. And what I think we can see, for example, if you take younger males, um, it's worth remembering that one of the things younger males used to have was an all-male bragging room okay you go out to the pub with a bunch of mates and you talk about cars 
Now, if you think about it, your social media feeds, unless you're a very unusual person indeed, are going to be about 50-50 in gender terms. <clears throat> One of the things you notice there is that car bragging, I grew up in a you know, in the Welsh provinces in the 1980s. And what car you had, particularly if you lived in a rural area, was an extraordinary determinant of your own feelings of success and well-being, okay? On social media, cars aren't a very good bragging currency, and that's possibly because in a mixed-gender environment it doesn't work. I don't know. Holidays are a fantastic bragging currency. And what you see, I would argue, is increasingly fatuous travel patterns because what people are thinking is not what will give me a good holiday, but what's an Instagrammable holiday. And one of the things I think it's led to is a kind of ridiculousness in long-haul travel where certain places acquire a ludicrous kind of status uh, attachment. Machu Picchu is the example I was give. Um, now, you know, it's it's not uncommon for me to be in an audience of say a hundred people, and typically millennials, and far more people have been to Machu Picchu than have been to Lincoln Cathedral. Now, bear in mind, Lincoln Cathedral you can reach on the on a train in a day from London. Okay, and yet four times as many people have travelled to Peru, gone at high altitude, suffered the risk of oxygen deprivation uh, to see something which is, to be honest, a lot less interesting than uh, Lincoln Cathedral. Um, obviously, that's subjective. On the other hand, the bragging rights, because it's a long way away, are enormous. And so that Instagrammable thing, also people are obsessed with going to places that other people have heard of. Because, because so you, you get long-haul tourism. It's extraordinary in terms of the winner-takes-all effect. So um, the most extraordinary phenomenon you can see in Paris now is not the Mona Lisa. It's the queue to see the Mona Lisa. And bear in mind that it often takes place in the Louvre, where you've also ah. got Botticelli's Birth of Venus. Uh, you've got, um, uh, what is it, the, uh, the, the, the statue of... Um, uh, uh, well, actually, about three or four absolutely uh, non-parai Greek sculptures. And yet the Mona Lisa, which wasn't even that famous in the 19th century and got famous through being stolen, uh, it's impossible to get within 200 yards of it for the selfie sticks. And it's all people who've travelled to Paris expecting only to go there once. Because they're expecting only to go there once, they have to see the Mona Lisa, the Eiffel Tower, the this, the that... Now, by the way, I'm not. By the way, I'm not criticising long haul tourists from the Orient for doing this because we're equally ignorant in the opposite direction. There are cities in China with a population of 15 million, and we've never heard of them. Okay, so if we all went to China, we'd all want to go and see the Great Wall of China, the Terracotta Army, and a panda. Okay, you know, but 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 what I'm saying is, that as you get further and further away, what's actually famous becomes less and less. So long haul travel results in an insane concentration of travel to a ridiculously small number of places. Yeah, it's becoming really big in South Africa, as you know, because of the geographic location and the surrounding countries that if someone can manage to get off of this continent, it's become Instagram gold. Yeah, of course, of course, because you're right at, you're in a peninsula right at the south end of the continent, and you're going to blitz the fact that you're not actually in Africa, that you're somewhere else. <laughs> And, it, and my problem is, of course, that, I mean, it doesn't really matter with something like the Hollywood side, 
Okay, I mean, you know, the, funnily enough, the people who live in, uh, next to the best vantage point for the Hollywood side do get really pissed off about it because there's basically a car park with a constant flow of people wanting to photograph themselves in front of the Hollywood sign. Table Mountain doesn't really matter if I go to Cape Town because there are loads of ways I can photograph myself in front of Table Mountain. But when you get those smaller things, like everybody wants to see Michelangelo's David and nobody gives a shit about anything else in Florence, okay, it leads to these utterly absurd patterns of movement. Global tourism is going to be highly problematic in another 30 or 40 years, simply because um, the the business of travelling once, ticking something off on your bucket list, and the very idea of a bucket list is unpleasant, I think. But compared to that, that business of one-off tourism for Instagram and bragging purposes is a very weird form of travel. Your work and the sort of behavioral science work, when, when leaders, brand managers, directors, and anyone trying to drive growth in their business, when they understand this, let's, let's say if you are marketing brand South Africa and you understand that a person in New York wants to, be, wants to light up their Instagram, visit this place and be seen as you know, more significant than they actually are, then how do you employ and think about behavioral science as it relates to creating some sort of advantage for yourself um, as a brand? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, whoever invented the concept of the big five – now, I think the big five were originally the five you were supposed to shoot. Is that right? If I'm right, the big five in, in safari so. terms. That was a very, very clever bit of behavioral science because it set an objective, a bucket list tick box, around a reason to go to South Africa. By the way, something I'm very, very keen on, is the idea, which I think is very clever, is the idea of branding roads, so the garden route. Uh, we, have something in, we have something in Britain with... I think it was ingenious. We had the idea of, I think it was called the Northern 500. So one of the things I'm very much in favour of is naming roads rather than places. So you at least get people to go to 15 places rather than one. And the Northern 500 is around the north of, funny enough, where my ancestral Sutherlands come from. You'd actually go through Latheran in Caithness. I think you start in Inverness, go all the way around the north coast of Scotland, down the west coast, which is sublime, and back again. And what that does is it creates a name and therefore creates a norm. And so, you know, the big five will at least lead people to go on safari and, you know, and invest some reasonable amount of time in the effort. Whereas seeing the, the, going to the top of the Eiffel Tower or whatever is a kind of one-off single-shot activity. And so one thing you can do is you can get better tourism. The other thing is, you know, can you get better repeat tourism? Because, I, you know, it's a, terrible, it's a terrible sadness, if you think about it, to go to an extraordinary country like South Africa and only go once. You know, they, you know I've been, what, five times, and I'm still you know, I'm still scratching on the surface of the place. What you're essentially saying is in terms of, you know, the journey of the road, the the value of the journey, the value of your experiences is sort of employing the brain's desire for story, for stories. I wanted you to speak a little bit about, you know, how brands understand and understand the power of story. Um, the extent to which... Tourism has basically become an, you know, a, a necessary contrivance for the purposes of storytelling. You know, I teased my, you know, I teased my children the other day by saying, you know, your your dating prospects would be severely damaged 
if you'd never had a long-haul holiday and you were now at a British university? Because you're competing with all these people who could go, yeah, well, when I was in Machu Picchu, it was a deeply spiritual experience, actually. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, okay. And, yeah, well, well, actually, I lived, you know, I lived in India on, like, $5 a day. Now, you know, a totally bogus form of poverty because you could have rung your dad anytime you wanted and got, you know, got a few hundred quid. I mean, uh, and Jarvis Cocker spotted this with Everybody Hates a Tourist in the song Common People. But, you know, part of, part of storytelling is sense-making, part of it's bragging. Um, uh, but what seems, the way I always phrase it is that something that has a narrative structure, anything that has a narrative structure, is like the PDF file for human information storage, sharing, and retrieval. You know, the, 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 there are about seven or eight narratives which all, you know, share a common structural element. Uh, what, what seems to be the case is that for whatever evolutionary reason, stories with a particular structure have a disproportionate currency. I'm delighted to see in a brand level um, uh, that KFC is starting to talk about Colonel Sanders more because it's an extraordinary story where he basically founded KFC when he was 65. Now, that's incredible incredible story of what you might call late stage innovation in a in a human life having spent his life you know, perfecting the pressure cooker inventing and perfecting uh, ways of flavoring and cooking chicken and i would think once you know that story you never think of kfc in the same way you might be inclined to think it's a bit of a you know it's a bit of a just a financial contrivance to sell chicken it's actually a really really interesting story the whole thing and when I was describe it as like a PDF file, it's a kind of universal format where for transmission and storage. That if something has a narrative structure, uh, there's a wonderful example given by somebody, and it's like if you take the king died, later the queen died. Okay, that's just two facts. If you say the king died and then the queen died of grief, that that takes on an entirely richer emotional. Um, sort of frame. So once it ceases to be factual and starts to have what you might call emotional resonance, something there gives it a currency and an influence which simple facts alone don't carry. Uh, by the way, one of the reasons Trump is very good is because he concretizes, okay? Now, if you think about it, he's not going to build a wall. I don't, you know, I don't think the Mexicans are going to pay for it. But he says, I'm going to build a wall. Now, everybody goes, if you're saying you're going to build a wall, you're kind of serious. That's a quantifiable thing, okay? It's concrete, it, it, it's palpable, whatever. What Hillary would have said if she was worried about this, Hillary would have said something like, we're going to engage in tripartite discussions with our Mexican and Canadian friends. Well, that's just bullshit, isn't it, really? It doesn't mean a damn thing. And so technocrats have lost by their technocratic language, which is very good at impressing other technocrats. Technocrats have lost the technique of actually communicating to anybody who isn't equally technocratic. And I think Jobs, Apple is a fantastic case of innovation because everybody was busy asking what a mobile handset could do. And he went closer to the human and asked the question, what does it feel like when you're doing it? So everybody else was chasing clock speed, build quality, all the rational quantifiable measures and he went off on a you know a complete tangent and said no no no, it's the subjective effect of this thing that matters it's how it feels like to do these things not what you can do when it comes to leaders 
employing and understanding behavioral science, you know, trying to almost like convert employees in terms of their mindset to understand and appreciate the culture of the company, particularly in the South African context where there's so much diversity, people who come from extremely different value systems. I mean, you can imagine um, I've spoken at Ogilvy here in South Africa, and I think in the room were people who had probably five, six different languages. You know, you know, what are some of the thoughts that you have around getting people, if you use some of the behavioral science uh, nudging from Richard Thaler and some of the thoughts from your own work to get people to sort of buy into the culture like, as they would a product? It's really important to understand that the neoliberal economic idea of rationality has pervaded business and has, I think, perverted the idea of what a business is. Let me explain, okay? So you know, the axiomatic thing in, um, uh, in, in economics is that people respond to incentives. So you set people bonuses if they meet certain targets. I think a lot of that kind of uh, instrumentalism in the motivation of business staff is actually counterproductive. First of all, it makes the relationship between employee and employer transactional rather than relational. It's all conditional. If you do X, I will pay you Y. What we're actually looking for for employers, because remember that security of tenure and 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 uh, constancy of employment is just as valuable as how much you're paid. You know, being paid a huge amount of money from someone who's planning to fire you any minute is not a great state of affairs. So what companies have failed to do is they fail to understand the longer term effects that actually people like to feel that there's a long term shared interest between employer and employee. When you send someone on a training course, it said, well, patenting this training course wouldn't make sense if we weren't planning for you to work for us for the next five years. It says very clearly, it's a signal from the employer that we see you as having a valuable long-term future with us. And that enables you to feel part of the tribe because you're actually a tribe member, not a hireling. You're actually part of the regular army. You're not, you're not just a sort of day hire. And of course... If you think about it, what you want out of people is not merely that they perform the function that you've defined in advance, because people have the discretion to perform lots and lots of other valuable activities, which are in the long-term interests of the company, which are impossible to define and impossible to quantify. You know, staying until seven o'clock at night when you don't strictly need to because you're looking after a junior member of staff, for example. So, you know, making people feel that they're actually part of something, not merely a kind of mercenary or sellsword, to use the uh, Game of Thrones phrase, is really, really important because alongside all the shit you can you can make contractual there's a huge amount of decisive behavior which you can't actually define quantify or reward but which has an ex- but but if people behave in this way for anthropological reasons in other words out of a sense of commitment to the wider group then the company will be much more successful now interestingly i had a friend it's not often you get people praising goldman sachs but I did have a friend who worked for Goldman Sachs, and he said, um, uh, he said there was one amazing thing about it, he said, which was unlike any other bank. Now, and I'd like to say that Ogilvy has the same quality and, and never loses it, um, which is someone rings you from the office in Ecuador and says, I need some help on this. And he said, at Goldman Sachs, no one would say, how much? What's in it for me? They would unquestioningly 
and instantaneously, immediately set about getting the information the person in Ecuador needed. Now, they said it helped that the person in Ecuador was bloody brilliant, you know, and could almost certainly help you out in future. It wasn't as if it was some useless shithead who, you know, who was just basically, you know, um, uh, but, you know, leeching off the London office uh, because Goldman Sachs didn't employ shit people anywhere. Uh, but that, he said, was rare. You know, most places would have put any request from the kind of Ecuadorian office to the bottom of their to-do list and probably would have fobbed it off on a junior. You, while you're speaking, I'm thinking about, you know, some examples you've given where people have obsessed over making the train faster instead of the actual experience the experience on the train. So you would just assume, you know, you take a little longer if there was a bit of entertainment. You know, I want to speak about how that can impact, you know, understanding that shift in thinking, how can that impact company culture? It's a very, it's a very, very easy, it's a very, very easy shift in thinking. And all good marketers and a lot of good businessmen have done it already. Uh, it's simply to understand that within a company, most of the activities of the company are measured objectively in numbers, okay? So generally an argument in the business, numbers triumph over words. But that brings with it a problem because when you come to employee behavior or consumer behavior, okay, objective reality does not translate directly into human perception. So at the very simplest level, if you're an engineer, it seems very rational to say, okay, well, okay, which, if you're, you're in a company with a strong engineering culture, which is the high status group? The group that's sitting there going, we've got a project now with a budget of uh, $7 billion to make trains faster. Okay. Now that gets the engineers practically moist with excitement. Okay. If you said, we've got a project to make train travel more enjoyable. Okay. That's a low status group. Uh, it's probably delegated to someone in marketing or customer experience, and it probably has a budget of about one million pounds. Okay, now let's look at what actually happens if you're a passenger of a train. Okay, we know very simply. I'm mean, actually human phraseology. If you think of phrases like "time flies when you're having fun" or "it was the longest five minutes of your life," that our, our perception of time, in particular, the effect that the emotions generated by time are entirely different depending on the context. So some people actually enjoy travel. Nobody ever says, okay, nobody ever says, I, I'm not very keen on going on a cruise because they're very slow. The ships are very slow. They're slower than a car. Okay. In that context, there's a virtue to being slow. Uh, in a sense, the survival of cruise ships and Cunard after the invention of the jet engine uh, was basically enabled because cruise ships invented themselves as the journey is the destination rather than merely being the blue ribbon time of, of competing on speed as transatlantic liners did before uh, jet travel, where you competed for the blue ribbon, where it was, it was about getting to the destination as fast as possible. And so that same reinvention can happen in other fields. If you make trains really enjoyable or productive, okay, now, the most interesting idea I've had for High Speed 2 in the UK is I think a Swiss firm, it might be GEC Ulsom or someone similar, has suggested the trains could be double-decker for greater capacity. Now, interestingly, that would be something like a 12 or 16 carriage train with two stories on each, right? Now, the opportunity there is you've now got 32 carriages mm. upstairs and downstairs. Now, what I know will happen is the economists 
will basically solve for the average and you'll have 32 carriages of identical, rather uncomfortable seating in an austere setting. Okay? Now, actually, with 32 carriages, four of the carriages could be office space, by which literally I mean meeting rooms on wheels, okay? You could have a cinema, you could have a ball pit, okay, for kids. Um, But secondly, um, the idea that objective reality, which is the thing that engineers are obsessed with, and this is what Steve Jobs also spotted, translates to human emotion in a neat mapping, in a linear relationship, is entirely bollocks, okay? And so everybody in a business, in order to justify their own bloody existence, is pursuing some sort of numerical Newtonian model of the world. Well, everybody who's a consumer probably doesn't care about that at all. I mean, even Uber, okay, we talk about trains, I even talk about Uber repeatedly. That map thing is the most brilliant single psychological idea in the last 15 years, okay? Because I used to find waiting for a taxi, particularly if you had a train to catch, remember, okay? Waiting for a taxi to take you to the train station to catch the last train was a state of massive high anxiety, okay? Oh, Christ, why is he not here yet? Oh, my God, this is unbelievable. Oh, shit, oh, shit, he's probably, uh, he's probably not coming at all, okay? You, it basically ruined the last 15 minutes of the party you're at, okay? And then a car would turn up and you weren't sure it was your car and all that sort of crap. The fact that they've reordered the process, it even includes expectation management. So before you've even requested a car, it gives you an estimate of how long you might have to wait before you commit, okay? That, that just reinvention in human psychological terms of what ordering a car should feel like, as distinct from what it used to be. Now, a rational car company would say, we need to reduce the waiting time. People are waiting too long. What, what, what Uber did, for all the criticism they get, is they said, we need to change how it feels to wait. And that's a much more important thing in human terms. Because we're motivated by our feelings, our likelihood to repeat an action is much more driven by how it feels than what it is. When you're thinking about examples of leaders like Nelson Mandela and how he used how he used the symbolism of rugby and putting on a rugby jersey to make a connection. I want to speak quickly about the idea of using symbols in terms of behavioral science and you know whether you're designing for the change you want, you're designing for buy-in, you're designing for engagement understanding the power of symbols and, and tapping into the unconscious power of the human being. That was probably the only monotone shirt that Nelson Mandela ever wore, was it? <laughs> the rugby shirt. <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, if I'm getting the symbolism right, rugby was seen as a pretty white sport in South Africa. Yes. Or rather, the yes. national team was historically, which had been excluded, tended to be overwhelmingly white. Is that right? That w- that's correct. And so, I mean, by the way, I mean, you have those associations. It's very interesting in, in, in the UK. So in Scotland or Ireland, rugby would tend to be a relatively middle-class sport, not so in Wales, uh, interestingly, uh, where it's much more of a universal sport. Uh, but it tends to be a little bit. But what he, what he was doing was, in, in a sense, uh, there was absolute, in terms of your dress, symbolic reconciliation, wasn't there? Now, I've got a very interesting one on this, which is that I don't, you know, if you have a wedding, I, I regard the business of everybody having to dress up in the same clothes as slightly oppressive. But equally, I think, I don't know if you agree with me, I think in dressing for a wedding, it shows 
consideration. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say respect, but it shows consideration and understanding sure. to make some form of symbolic effort. So the no-no I always regard is, I, I, you know, if someone turned up in my, okay, yes. I, I'm frightened of clowns, so I wouldn't want anybody turning up in a clown suit. Okay, but apart from that, but the one thing I would go is you don't wear training shoes to a wedding. Okay, now, now that's my own personal re- view, which is that you, you, at some level it, it, it simply shows consideration of a group that you adopt a slightly unfamiliar item of clothing to show an affiliation or to show consideration. There's an important question, which is, what if the opposite had happened? Okay. So, you know, in other words, what if you'd basically, um, uh, you'd essentially, you know, refuse to attend rugby matches, you refuse to show any interest in rugby. In other words, you showed disdain for a group who, you know, whatever their rights and wrongs needed to be included in this wider settlement. Okay. So the ability to make concessions symbolically is, you know, anthropologically a really, really important thing. And my God, I mean, what a great anthropologist. So if you have a number of new hires who start in your behavioral design, behavioral science division, and um, they ask you, in 20 years, why should they um, commit to this discipline? Why is it becoming so important? Oh, um, I'll tell you very simply, um, and I think this is a very, very simple answer, which is marketing is a way of looking at the world. It's fundamentally, um, uh, it's a viewpoint, okay? What has happened in business is that the size of the marketing department is proportionate to the amount they spend on communications. Therefore, you know, if I'm in the Unilever consumer skincare division, there's no shortage of marketing-driven opinions. People look at the world naturally through a consumer's viewpoint. They automatically ask the question, you know, how, you know, how will this deliver the emotional promise of something? Okay, there's no shortage of that. But there are huge areas of communication when you think about it. Sorry, of business activity. There are huge areas of business activity where the communication spend is a rounding error. It's very small. B2B companies tend to have very small comms departments. Okay. Government tends to spend very, very little on advertising in proportion to what it spends on GDP. And as a result, there are enormous areas of business which don't have a marketing function. And there are enormous areas of government which don't have a marketing function. In the absence of the marketing viewpoint, they will make decisions that are entirely around uh, what is economically rational and not what is emotionally motivating. And you know, very simply, if you take a marketer, if you take a group of marketers, you get them to look at, for example, government policy on pensions. You will see that extraordinarily inefficient and stupid things are done to incentivize people to get pensions, which no marketer would have contemplated for a second because people are looking at the economic tube map of the world. They're not looking at the full transport network. And so the the opportunity for us in Ogilvy Consulting and in Ogilvy, the behavioral science practice, is to go into those areas of business which have been totally um, isolated from marketing thinking because they, they think of marketing as marcoms and therefore they don't think they need marketing. And to deliver uh, the insights and innovations you can enjoy 
when you have a marketing mindset on the world. And my argument would be very, very simply, uh, if I want to make a promise to anybody in behavioral science, that actually um, I would regard it as fundamentally dangerous to have a board, a, gr a group of people at board level who don't have a marketing thinker uh, present for the simple reason that marketers look at the world in a different way to everybody else and they see things that you don't. Now, I can even go into the scientific technicalities of this by talking about things like ergodicity, that marketers look at things through the eyes of a single person over time, whereas I think corporate and institutional decision-making has been trapped in the idea of the single representative agent. The idea that there's a single person who transacts, who's representative of our whole customer base by being an average of our customer base, and we need to serve him, and whatever we do that serves him will serve the whole customer base, and it doesn't matter whether we're selling one thing to 10 people uh, or we're selling 10 things to one person, um, uh, the economic uh, activity is essentially indistinguishable and identical. And I think this comes from the false ergodic assumption that underlies economics. I'm not remotely qualified to talk about the maths here, but I do know people uh, in the London Maths Laboratory, a wonderful guy called Ole Peters, who are doing serious work on this, which is the idea that actually the standard business school view of how business works is much, much more anthropologically shallow, uh, for one thing, but it's also mathematically wrong because it doesn't actually look at what matters to an individual human customer. It looks at what happens to a kind of theoretical composite customer who may not even exist. What I enjoy, what I appreciate about that, because even in design thinking, that same principle sort of applies. Well, in design thinking, one of the things in my book is I, I make a big case for designing for the disabled. Because my argument is that everybody is disabled part of the time. So if you mandate that you have door handles rather than doorknobs, the official reason was that people who have very bad arthritis or indeed have lost their hands can't open a doorknob, but they can open a door handle. And my argument is everybody carrying two cups of tea has effectively lost the use of their hands. Designing the, shower, the shampoo and the conditioner uh, so that the conditioner opened at the bottom and the shampoo opened at the top was partly done for partially sighted or blind users. But actually, anybody in a shower is half blind anyway. You know, I've got fairly good vision. I can't see a fucking thing in the shower, right? And so, so actually, you know, one of those things is that designing for extreme users is a much more interesting exercise in terms of how you improve something than designing for the average or the typical. Um, Roy, I want, I want to close by asking you a question. What would TED be without the audience? Now, you know, if you're designing the kind of perfect environment, imagine you could deliver your talk. You could deliver a talk without an audience. You can deliver it in, a, you know, in front of a screen. You know, when you're thinking about behavioral science, what role does the audience play in TED? Well, no, it's a very interesting one because it is, I mean, to be honest, the TED audience is a bit homogeneous, but I'm, they are making efforts to actually broaden it. One of the great things about an audience, which any comedian will tell you, is they take their material on tour and refine it because you've got instantaneous feedback. One of the really important things it did is it encouraged scientists to popularize work. I think science had a marketing problem in that the really important ideas didn't make it outside of a tiny kind of coterie of specialists because scientists were largely in pursuit of peer group approval.
And of course, your peer group, as science becomes more and more specialized, becomes a smaller and smaller group of people. Really interesting, because the great thing about the TED audience is you had the live audience, which made it seem much more alive than if those lectures had been delivered to a lecture hall. Okay, you know, there was actual clapping and enthusiasm and goodness knows what else. Okay, but I also think there's an opportunity. The other really important thing was that all those talks were shared freely. Indeed, the whole definition of TED was ideas worth sharing. A huge thanks to Roy Sutherland. Go to Amazon or any good bookstore and grab Roy's book, Alchemy, The Surprising Ideas That Don't Make Sense, and search him on YouTube. Go listen to his TED Talks. Please share this episode with family and friends and colleagues and rate us on whichever podcast platform you're using. It means a lot that you found a moment to listen. Until the next time.